Hello friends, my name is Jude Monk McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation, who are a US-based non-profit organization. Go visit their website, epicprojects.org. My guest today is the solicitor and first-tier tribunal judge, Nadine Clarkson. In school, Nadine received very little support for her dyslexia. In fact, her headmistress didn't even believe dyslexia was real. Despite this, she gained 12 GCSEs and was put onto an Oxbridge entry class. But once again, she didn't have the support her dyslexic needs to complete the A-levels for successful Oxbridge entry. She eventually studied law to become a barrister. Once she had qualified, she found herself wanting to be part of cases which helped the lives of many people and not just the individual in the case. In order to do this, as soon as possible after qualifying, she transferred and qualified as a solicitor with higher court advocacy rights. She worked for eight years as a solicitor and had eight reported cases, including two successes in the European Court of Justice and one in the House of Lords, the precursor to the Supreme Court. After having her children, she felt she could not work the hours required and looked for an alternative career and decided to apply for the judiciary. She was appointed as a first-tier tribunal judge in social security and she's worked in this area for the past 11 years. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of dyslexic people so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work, they teach any adult off the street and they teach them to read for free. And they have a free online screening tool which you can use to assess yourself or a loved one for dyslexia. Hello Nadine, welcome. Hello. Um, I want to jump straight in to why it was you were drawn to uh, the law, um, becoming a a barrister and a solicitor and then of course eventually a judge. Um, What was it um, that compelled you to go into the law? Well, um, I'd been working as a paralegal while I was studying and I came into contact and was representing lots of people from um, very disadvantaged groups. So um, refugees, ethnic minorities, people who were just quite poor, disabled people. um, And um, I think I've always had a sense of uh, of of people deserving justice and a kind of civic responsibility. Um, and so I felt that if I studied law, I might be able to help people more than I was able to do at that time. Um, I was involved in charity work for quite a few years, but through my work as a lawyer, I managed to help more people, I would say, and be more effective. Mm. And 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 was it um, from your own experience, your own your own experiences in 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 life, that you had a sense of wanting to help uh, the disadvantaged or those who hadn't the access to justice um, and who desperately needed it? Yes, I think um, having faced difficulties at school because of my dyslexia um 
made me realize how important it is to have help on occasions and um how you can be disadvantaged by things that can feel beyond your control um and how a small bit of help can make a, a big difference i think as well mm. so um i didn't really get much help at school but i realized that a little bit of help would have gone a long way yeah yeah so take us back talk to us about that experience at school where you didn't receive that 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 help you needed um well my first primary school um i was always state educated my first primary school was very traditional and um my mother informs me that they just simply told her that um um i was retarded and that they shouldn't expect much wow. and and <laughs> on another occasion my mother was reprimanded for speaking to me in Spanish because that was only going to make things worse, according to them. Um, wow. Wow. wow so wow. <laughs> um, that was my first primary school. My second primary school, I was very fortunate. It was a, a very liberal hippie primary school and um, <laughs> they just accepted that I couldn't write and um, gave me lots of maths to do after I'd worked through all of the maths books in the whole school they just fed me more and more math sheets to do to keep me busy and I remember once I had a teacher who was really nice and just said um, we had to do some project work and they let me make up a story that it was all done by aliens and that's why nobody else could read it and only <laughs> I could read it but actually my handwriting was so bad at the time I couldn't read what I'd written either um, <laughs> But it did give me the opportunity just to improvise and tell people verbally about my work rather than having to write it down and not being able to. Well, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, you know, um, uh, yeah, calling you retarded, uh, their words um, mm. at school and then and then um, suggesting that being able to speak Spanish to your child would would, would make your English or your comprehension or your understanding worse. I mean, this. I mean, that's so obviously misguided um, and yeah. um, just just wrong on on many levels. Are you? Are you? Um, I'm assuming you, you, you're still bilingual. Yes. So I think my dyslexia is an advantage in language. Actually, although people always think dyslexics won't be able to speak other languages, I think because I don't have clear segregation and boundaries in my head in between this is Spanish or this is French or this is Portuguese yeah. um yeah. I just hear them and I understand so it's an advantage in terms of understanding because I find it very easy to understand other languages um it's a disadvantage in that um I, I find grammar impossible and my memory for new words is very poor so I will hear a language and be able to understand a lot of it but unless yeah. I'm using it all of the time I can't retain the vocabulary and right. my grammar is just I still I still don't understand grammar to be honest in any language right, <laughs> right. so you're written grammar or you're speaking grammar written but written. speaking as well I mean I find in, for example in French if I've heard it then mm. I will repeat it as I've heard it used. But I, I don't understand that, oh, that's because this rule says that it should be in this order. 
if if you see what I mean. I just I'm yeah, really yeah. poor at retaining that kind of information. Yeah. Um, rules have to have logical reasons for me, otherwise it doesn't stick. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, do you dream in different languages? Um, if I'm speaking Spanish, then yes, I dream in Spanish. Um, ah. So it depends what language I'm speaking in the majority of the time. Yeah. So, um, yes, it's it's interesting. But obviously, Spanish is a lot easier in terms of spelling. Right, um, yes. Okay. Because yeah. it's more phonetic. So that's that's easier for me. But um, I've never been able, one of the things I've always had problems with in terms of learning anything is being dyslexic. For example, when I tried to learn um, to touch type as a teenager, I did a touch typing course. But of course, they test you on how correct it is what you've you've written. And Mm. of course, I can't spell. (laughs) So (laughs) I could never get past a certain level because I think, well, my 11 year old was able to spell more words than I could spell Mm. I'd say probably a few years ago so um it would be I I wouldn't be able to help him with his spellings if it wasn't for them being written down on the sheet so my spelling is really poor um so it's made things like accessing things like touch typing or accessing learning new languages very difficult because so often the measure that is used is whether you can spell correctly. Hmm. Well, for different things. Um, your story is incredibly inspiring, given um, the things you've achieved, um, which would make people who who can spell um, the majority of them uh, sweat uh, at the, the 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 you know the amount of uh, training you've done um, to become a barrister solicitor and a, a, a judge and the uh, sort of quite you know dusty old english and and um you know the sheer volume of stuff that you're going to have to remember um mm. how was i mean how did you attack that you know how how was that for you it was really hard i would say to get <laughs> it was really hard surprise to get surprise through the academic but unsurprisingly when i got onto my law degree and I turned up and said, hi, I'm dyslexic. And they went, we've never had anyone with special needs on the law degree before. We don't know what to do with you. Um, So I got extra time and um, I got a disabled student grant that gave me a computer and some recording equipment. So that was very helpful. But apart from that, I didn't get any help at all. and subsequently found out that I'd been marked down for my spelling um, during exams. But the way I dealt with it was um, colours and stories. So for the exams, you have to remember lots of cases. And I knew that I wouldn't get the points for remembering the name of the case because I can't retain names or numbers very well at all. So I knew I had to work extra hard to make up the points on everything else. So I wouldn't get the point for the name of the case, but I would remember the story and I'd have them on different coloured flashcards and I'd draw pictures to remind me of what happened in that case. Um, So the principles always stayed in my head and I would just have to constantly go over them. Um, My memories 
poor. And so I'd have to do it really intensely just before the exams. But when I sit in the exam, I'd think, oh, yes. And I'd see the colour of the card and I'd see the colour of the picture and remember what had happened. Do you have a a photo memory? No, (laughs) I wish I did. (laughs) I wish I did, but um, I don't. But I remember stories and I remember principles because I think they fit into a wider picture. And it's important, I find, to visualise where things go. Mm. Like they're mm. a, So if it's just an isolated piece of information that I can't hang or frame in the context of other things, I won't be able to remember it. But if I can put it on a tree and say, that's a branch of this and it's related to that, then it will stay in my memory. But I do think that having got through the academic stages, um, my dyslexia then became an advantage. So I think not seeing things in such a linear fashion and being able to take a bigger picture and being more creative Mm. meant that um, I had a lot of cases where people had um, been to see other lawyers and not been able to get a solution or there were lots of other people in the same situation who'd sought legal advice and this hadn't been remedied. Because, A, I can't rely on my memory, so I always go back to the law and I always check it because I never rely Mm. on my memory. It made me analyse the text of the regulations very carefully and made me think of it in a bigger picture. And so I think, well, if I take a bit from there and I take this principle from there and if we bring them together, then I think that this will be a solution. And so it then became more about problem solving. Mm. Um, And so um, on the better days with my judicial work, I think it's about problem solving and that's where my skill set does lie. And it's very satisfying. Yeah, it's quite a common story that, you know, once dyslexic get past the the, the barriers towards uh, certain kinds of professions, as you say, they can utilise that that um, um, that nonlinear thinking, that sort of lateral thinking, because mm. it's dominated by um, an intelligence which is more um, linear. Um, and then to have a voice that's saying, "Well, hold on, how how about this?" which is adjacent or around it, or you know, as you say, like just that practical thing of having to go back to look at um, you know the, the evidence or, or, or whatever it is, the the, the ruling. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sure it's massively beneficial to just to to, to be made aware and 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 um, uh, s- see more clearly potentially what is the 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 issue at hand. I I don't have the benefit of being able to rest on my laurels of having an excellent memory that I can just regurgitate things, but I think it's it's been an advantage because it's made me critically analyse the text or the evidence in front of me in in more detail than I probably would have done otherwise, I think. Mm. So it takes me longer frequently to do things, um, but often I think that has been beneficial and led me to a different conclusion to other people. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we we on this podcast love the practicalities of uh, problem solving or workarounds 
as uh, as uh, as we call them. Um, are there any other workarounds that you employ? Like with the computer you were given um, to to study, did you were there any uh, workarounds that you developed utilizing your computer? Well, it was a very long time ago, so the technology <laughs> wasn't great. But now um, I use um, voice recognition, um, which is just brilliant. Um, I still have difficulties, though, for example, because it will write down words that look similar to what I've said. And mm. when I'm reading it back, I still think it's written down the word that I said and I don't spot. Um, so I still make errors, um, but I have a proofreader who goes through my work. Um, and so the, the, the human touch and extra help is still required, but mm. to have the voice recognition that I didn't have before is amazing and just makes life so much easier. Unfortunately, I think the kind of mental hang-ups of writing <laughs> are still there. Um, and um, before starting anything, I still want to run 100 miles in the opposite direction very fast. Um, of course. But I think we all, whenever anything's challenging, would prefer to <laughs> run away. But once I get into it now um, with the voice recognition, it's really good. And I have um, software that allows me to mind map on the computer, um, which is great. And I found that using, I use three screens and that's really helpful for me because it helps me compartmentalise the different things that I'm thinking about um, whilst I'm working so that's been really helpful for me as well yeah I, I don't know if you have this but so with my dyslexia mm -hmm. I find so for example at the moment I'm uh I'm marking a lot of um acting exams mm -hmm. and I, I find it very difficult to just sit and do one at a time I actually find it easier to have three on the go and to jump between them um, because I don't know what my, my brain, I don't know if you have this, it sort of feels like the, the front part of my brain is sort of overheating. Um, it could probably to do with stress as well. Um, but I, I then I need to, to break up the workload and it somehow feels more manageable. And I don't know, it's probably completely irrational for, for the people who, who aren't dyslexic to hear that sort of thing, but that's, that's what works for me. Well, I would say it, it took me getting into my 40s to realise that just the really obvious thing of breaking things down into bite size is just absolutely fundamental. Totally. Um, I know that stress makes my dyslexia, my dyslexic traits worse. Um, yep. Tiredness. I don't realise, but if I try and write something when I'm tired, it will be absolutely littered with spelling yeah. mistakes that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise make. But at the time, I just don't see them. Um, yeah. So it's made me become more aware that I'm always on a, on a fine edge in terms mm. of functioning, <laughs> in yes. terms of a normal writing world and not really functioning. And it doesn't take much to tip it over. So you have to manage these things. And, and I think breaking things down into bite-sized amounts really works and I, I've just 
realized that I'm, I'm like a pet. I need treats. So I need to break <laughs> it down and yeah. think, okay, I've got to face this, what appears to be insurmountable mountain of writing. Yes. But actually it's three pieces of work and each one of those I can break down into different stages. And I know that if I plan to do these stages on these days and my reward would be this, so long as I get it finished by that point. Um, and as an adult, I look at it and I just think this is really silly. It's like timetabling for a five-year-old, but it really works if I do it for myself. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely it does. Yeah, that's, that's, that is a, that's a great uh, way of breaking down um, stressful situations. Um, that's really, you know, again, I'm, I'm in my, my early 30s. So um, certainly with this work, I have developed, as you say, um, a timetable. Um, I set a timer for the amount of work I try and get done. And then a break is essential, exercise is essential. You know, it's know thyself, isn't it? It's you, you have to know the circumstances which are most conducive to you uh, being at your best and your dyslexia not being exacerbated by not sleeping, not, not eating, stress. Mm. I think if you have any kind of difficulties and you're in a situation that relies on you overcoming those difficulties it's very easy to become very stressed and it's very easy to let it completely undermine your self-confidence across everything rather than realizing it's actually just these specific things um so to constantly try and step back and recognize for example in my case that the spelling or the lack of grammar doesn't mean that what I've written isn't actually quite good but it's always a, a kind of psychological management thing to not let it overwhelm you I think yes, um, and completely. I think you're completely right about exercise and, and, and breaking things up and I've realised for me it's important that if I have a lot of writing to do I need to balance that with doing other creative things or other things that are more of my skill set mm. to balance that out because yes I think it, you, you can become overwhelmed because in in some respects what I'm doing is constantly being a square peg trying to get into a round hole <laughs> and uh, that can become demoralizing but when I do more work in court then it reminds me that I really enjoy my job and that I'm good at my job because mm. I'm using other skills, which um, it, I think my ability to empathise with people, um, my ability to read um, nonverbal cues um, is, and my ability to manage people are skills that um, I would hope everyone in the judiciary has, but the nature of the channeling through all the academic steps that you have to get to doesn't place weight on those skills. Um, and so they aren't necessarily the strongest skills that judges may have, yes. but it's something that is a skill set that I do have. And I realise that when I'm in court, I can use that to people's advantage. And um, it's, I think it's very important in terms of enabling vulnerable witnesses and, and people who are disadvantaged because it's such a potentially intimidating situation having to come to court. 
Um, yes. And so stressful for anyone if you do have a disability or a mental health problem or um, any other kind of disadvantages. It it can become uh, an overwhelming experience and I want to enable people to give their best possible evidence. Um, and that's what I try and do. And so I feel that my natural skill set then comes into play um, and is an advantage that some people don't necessarily have. Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it feels like it needs to be um, a place, certainly with, with, with certain cases, a place with um, judges who have immense levels of empathy and understanding and sensitivity around the giving of certain evidence. Um, mm. Because if that situation is exacerbated by somebody who is unable to or doesn't quite have the emotional sensitivity or intelligence, um, mm. then justice could well be swayed um, and, uh, and, and, a, and a, a false ruling could occur. But I mean, it's, it's very difficult to um, enable people to give their best possible evidence in some circumstances. And people's reading of other people in terms of their credibility can be so subjective and can be yes. so biased in relation to your cultural norms or your personal experiences. Um, so we do have training in relation to unconscious bias and that kind of thing, but um, mm. it it's something that you have to be so aware of. And I think that my experience of being dyslexic and the skill set that it gives me has given me a, an advantage in those areas and that I find that a bit easier to do I think I'm hoping that the judiciary will begin to reflect more the society that it serves and they are trying to do that and there are more women um, than there were previously um, unfortunately it's still not reflective of the um, uh, wider society in terms of disability or ethnic minorities um, or neurodiversity. But I'm hoping that things will change and hopefully more rapidly than they have done in the past. Well, I, I mean, is, is the barrier to entry what we've talked about that it is um, incredibly... Um, you know, the, the, the uh, academic aspect of it is so challenging. Um, and I would assume, I mean, you, you might disabuse me of this assumption that um, quite often it's uh, people from families with quite a large um, inherited wealth or, or, or mm -hmm. they have money in order to take on um, the education. And um, I would assume extra schooling. Um, and, and quite often they are, uh, men. I mean, quite often we talk about internal biases. Quite often in business and in, in in most professions, we choose the intelligence which is like our own, um, and surround ourselves with that. Um, that that is, is, is a very long question. <laughs> um, sorry, it was the no. barrier barrier barriers for entry and and changing and bringing more diversity into um, the legal system. I think. Um the, there have been attempts to change that image of the judge and um, that it was a white, middle-class, upper-class 
man yeah. who's had lots of privilege. Um, mm. They outsourced recruitment to the Judicial Appointments Commission to do that. Um, and for example, they did ask me whether I had a disability when I applied. And when I said that I was dyslexic, they asked me what adaptions I wanted and they were very good with that. Mm. Um, but they're a separate body. And unfortunately, after I was appointed, I then wasn't offered any support. But um, but the recruitment process they did, it's increased slightly the number of women who've been appointed, but it's still... Um, there are far more applications from solicitors who um, tend to come from less privileged backgrounds and uh, be made up of more ethnic minorities than barristers, but still more barristers are appointed than solicitors. Um, so they haven't really managed to change the statistics much. Um, I'm hoping that things will change a bit more but there really needs to be more effort in terms of institutional change, I think. Um, mm. Do you think they're doing enough to do that? Or is is it just, you know, a, a gesture? I would hope it's more than a gesture, mm. but the statistics speak for themselves. And if you look at since the appointment uh, change to the Judicial Appointment Commission, they haven't changed that much. Mm. Um, and so there's still there is still work to be done there clearly because the statistics are the statistics and they're not reflecting the society that we serve so it's not that there aren't skilled people who are from ethnic minorities or state educated it's just they're not getting through the the system and getting to the point that they maybe have the experience to be um meeting the criteria so maybe the criteria need to be looked at again i don't know but there mm. are there's certainly problems um and there's still a lot of room for improvement actually within the judiciary once people are appointed well it makes you despair doesn't it i mean the the there are so many professions not just your own um certainly mine um as an actor uh, where the barriers to entry have, have meant we've lost so many talented people um who could have uh, affected um, either great good or, or or created incredible pieces of of work. You know, um, Shakespeare was the son of a glove maker, so he was middle class and and got to go to um, uh, grammar school. Uh, but you know, there were countless others, uh, working class and otherwise, who who could well have contributed um, to the cultural heritage that we all have. Um, but you know, they were poor, so who cares about about their opinions and the the things they could have created? Um, tell us about uh, the 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 case that you are proudest of being a part of. Ooh, that's hard. Um, I had two cases that were in relation to pregnant EU national women. So basically, they were women who'd come to the UK to work. And they'd worked for a substantial period of time, but then they'd fallen pregnant and um, their partnerships or their marriages had disintegrated. And I was getting these clients who are heavily pregnant, husband has left them, can't work because they're in such a late stage of their pregnancy or they've got complications in their pregnancy. And 
Um, EU law didn't cover them and the domestic law didn't cover them and they were basically destitute and on the street and having to sofa surf and this was something that was happening not just in the UK but across Europe Um, and so it just felt to me intrinsically wrong and not something that would have been the intention when they were drafting the legislation in Europe um, about Mm. free movement. They considered accidents at work and all kinds of other possibilities. Um, But it clearly came from a very male perspective and they didn't actually consider what might happen if women get pregnant. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I had this one client. So she'd worked for four and a half years and got pregnant and had a child and you had to work for five years to get the permanent right of residency um, oh, right. without a break. So she didn't qualify. Then she worked for another four years and then was pregnant again. So again, missed out. And then <sighs> I saw her on her third pregnancy. So this was about 13 years later. And each time she'd missed out on just getting through. But she basically spent 13 years working full-time, supporting her family, paying Mm. taxes, taxes, living in the UK. And um, her uh, marriage ended and she was heavily pregnant with complications. She couldn't work. And all of a sudden, her and her two children were destitute. They couldn't get benefits. She didn't want to go back to Portugal. She didn't have any support there. She Mm. hadn't lived there for a long time. Um, so because I can't remember the legislation and don't take anything for granted, I went back and looked at the law and I looked at not just the regulations, but I went back to looking at the principles, um, in relation to European worker rights and looked at how they thought about all these other circumstances where things could go wrong temporarily to stop you working, but they'd taken those into account. And it struck me that I didn't think that that was the correct approach to suddenly exclude people just because they were pregnant when they intended to return to work. Um, And these cases, well, first of all, we had to go through judicial review and then the Court of Appeal. And then uh, we ended up going to the European Court of Human Rights, but in the end were successful in the European Court of Human Rights. And... um, that was a great feeling because it yeah, not amazing. just resolved the case for this these individual women, but um, women across the European Union now could say, I should still be treated as somebody who's exercising treaty rights and therefore get entitlement to benefits or housing or just their immigration status recognised. So that just become by becoming pregnant, they suddenly don't lose everything and have to go back to their country of origin, which they might not have lived in for a very long time. Um, so that was a, a, a really nice outcome. Yeah. Well, uh, th- th- come on. Uh, talk to, I mean, the amount of work um, that you must have put into that, um, and the it, I, I assume I'm 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 trying to empathise with you here that um, getting landmark precedent cases like that, where um, in future rulings have to refer back to that as the precedent. That has to be like, you know, you're in your kitchen or your living room screaming and fist pumping and, and you it's, know, popping it's a, it's champagne a really, <laughs> It's a really, 
lovely feeling. But unfortunately, with cases, it's never very instantaneous. So you might have the hearing and then you might have to wait six months for the judgment to come back. And there's always then the possibility, is it going to be appealed or is it going to be accepted? So um, unfortunately, you don't get that kind of instant gratification but it is definitely very rewarding and very gratifying and it was you know I was very fortunate to work with an excellent barrister Adrian Berry so he was really great um, um, but I think all of the cases that I had that had kind of successful wider public interest outcomes were as a result of my mindset because of my dyslexia and, and just seeing that there could potentially be other ways of solving this problem and trying to go back to basics rather than relying on memorising detail and just applying literally the letter of the law, but actually looking at what are the principles behind it. So, um, yes, I definitely think my dyslexia was an advantage, but um it has always resulted in spending, I think, a lot more time working than other people, mm. unfortunately. But um, it swings and roundabouts. But it's definitely um, a very fulfilling experience being involved in cases like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I should imagine that's exactly why you do it. Yes, exactly. So um, it, now being a member of the judiciary... I don't get to do cases like that, which have such um, wide-reaching ramifications. But still, every day, you feel that you can contribute towards society, you can help resolve things one way or another. Um, and I think that's a very important role. And um, the more judges there are, um, and I would hope that there might be better access to judges uh, to justice because there's still a lot of delay, which can cause a lot of hardship. But um, hopefully, that those kind of delays in terms of accessing court hearings and things um, will be reduced in the future because it's a very slow process. I hope so. I hope so. Mm. Um, Nadine, thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, really appreciate it. Um, the the things you raised, the work around not taking anything for granted and going back to basics, I'm sure will be very useful things for our listeners to to utilise or remind themselves of, or or, or you know a, a try a new way of managing their dyslexia in in a challenging situation. So, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me, and I think it's important that we all just need to remember that it might look insurmountable because it's something that requires not your strongest skills, but if you break it down and take it step by step, quite often you can get there. Um, and it's perseverance, really. I, think. I feel like you're talking directly to me. <laughs> I think for everyone, I think if we all just break it down into small steps, we can get there. And I think it's really important that dyslexic people remember remember that and although they might be pushed because of the way society works and the way jobs works into initially having to do lots of things that they find hard the end product could be something that they're really good at and they just need to remember that they can get over those hurdles um, and it's worth persevering perseverance um, that's mm. the perfect note to end on 
Thank you. So thank you, Nadine. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Joe McGowan. My guest today was Nadine Clarkson. And there are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. And please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, please go and visit dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation. Epic is a US-based, non-profit organisation. Epic creates bonds among caring people devoted to solving global challenges of poverty, food insecurity, environmental degradation, human rights, and making peace. Go to their website, epicprojects.org. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please go rate and subscribe and leave us a little review even. It really helps us grow.